Hello and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Robert Chafe. Robert Chafe is a playwright based in St. John's, whose work has been seen across Canada, the UK, Australia, and the United States. He's the author of 17 stage scripts and co-author of another eight. He was shortlisted for the Governor General's Award for Drama for Tempting Providence and Butler's Marsh in 2004, and won the award for After Image in 2010. He has been writer-in-residence at Artistic Fraud, Playwrights Atlantic Resource Centre, Playwrights Workshop Montreal, Forest Forge Theatre in Hampshire, UK, and Memorial University of Newfoundland, and a guest instructor at Memorial University of Newfoundland, Sir Wilfred Grenfell College, and the National Theatre School of Canada. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted that you're here. Me too. And we're going to talk about this uh, this business of, of, of writing and, and playwriting, and, and specifically focusing on kind of how we write and create history, because I know that this is kind of a theme that has... Emerged. Yeah. It's emerged. I'm emerging artist. <laughs> Constantly emerging. So how did you, I mean, when you started off as a playwright, were you, were you thinking about that you were going to be the playwright that wrote Newfoundland's history? Oh my goodness. No, the exact opposite, actually. I, uh, when I start, I started like most, I shouldn't say most, a lot of playwrights, I think, start because they're um, frustrated actors. And I was a frustrated actor. I thought I was absolutely brilliant and... Uh, I thought I was uh, underappreciated actor. So I thought, okay, well, you know, really what people need to see is Robert Chafe in a really good role. So if no one's going to cast me in that, I'm going to write one for myself and put me in it. So I wrote the uh, obligatory one-person show. You know, everyone had them in the 90s. Not so much anymore. Like, I don't know, actors don't write their one-person shows mm, yeah. anymore as much. But uh, everyone in the 90s had a one-person show, and I had mine. And and after that, that went okay. And then I went on and did a, another show which was the obligatory coming-out-of-the-closet uh, gay play that everybody had in the 90s as well. And uh, and after that, I started... Uh, I was kind of enjoying the process of writing and certainly enjoying the process of having... Um, what I really love... This is totally egocentric, but it's true. I'm going to be honest. I really love the sensation of having a collection of people um, in a room, kind of uh, that focused energy that comes around creating a play, creating a piece of theatre... Uh, and the sense that that all started with me, that I had this kind of... Um, you were the architect of Wisp this. of an idea yeah. that, yeah, I was the architect of this and that everyone was coming around that. I really, it's totally egocentric, but it's true. And I remember that being, uh, you know, uh, the kind of real impetus to keep writing. I guess it was the third or fourth play that I wrote that uh, I was looking at it and kind of went, huh, there's no role for me in this anymore. Which was uh, it? Just kind of chose me, I guess, more than anything else. But um, those early plays, one of the things that was really, really important to me, certainly as I, I kind of uh, accepted that I was emerging as a as a writer, and not so much as an actor. One of the things that became really, really important to me was that uh, that my work be producible elsewhere. And for me, in my naive state back then, that meant uh, making it quote unquote universal. And so I actively went out of my way to make it not specific to Newfoundland. Uh, I wrote the plays with um, no real designated place of origin, and I, you know, I kept away from um, names, surnames, that kind of thing, or right, turns yeah. of phrase, I thought, that, that identified specifically with Newfoundland. Because I thought, you know, who's going to want to produce that in sure. Toronto, Vancouver? And, and I really thought, you know, that if I'm going to survive as a writer, I need to be able to get this stuff produced up there eventually. And so that's the way I was going about things. And with few exceptions, a notable one being um, the project I did with Selena Asgar and Sean Panting for uh, First Light Productions on Bell Island in 97. With the exception of that one, that was pretty much the case until um, 
2000 to 2002 when I was commissioned by Theatre Newfoundland and Labrador out in Cornerbrook to write uh, Tempting Providence, what became Tempting Providence about Nurse Mary Bennett um, that premiered in Grossmourne, the Grossmourne Theatre Festival in 2002. And that play... The grand dream for that play was that if it was successful in the summer season, that it would then tour the old age homes. Because this is about <laughs> Nurse Mary Bennett, who had passed away in 1919. She hadn't lived in Newfoundland for the 10 years previous to that. So I had never heard of her growing up. But yeah. my parents' generation, older, all knew her. So so maybe for people who aren't familiar with her. Sure. Um, uh, nurse Mary Bennett was a British nurse who, at the age of 31, signed on to come to uh, Newfoundland, the colony of Newfoundland, the country of Newfoundland, in 1921. Um, for two years. She signed on for two years. Um, she had actually applied to go to Saskatchewan, and they deemed the healthcare needs on the northern peninsula of Newfoundland to be much more dire, so she was sent there because of her expertise in midwifery, etc. So she went there for two years. Uh, within six months, had met this man, Angus Bennett. Within a year, was engaged to be married to him, and then was married and pregnant, and she kind of stayed there for the rest of her life. Essentially, the rest of her life until 1980. I think she moved with her daughter to Ontario and then passed away in 1990. Uh, so, and, and, you know, she's one of these people that, that came into an area of the province where there were no roads, mm -hmm. and, you know, towns were greatly disconnected and there was no sense of healthcare or personal well-being really. And she, beyond, and she was, she was it. She and she became, was it. Yeah. And she, she was a dentist. She was a vet. She was, you know, and she's kind of one of these people. And, uh, and so the, the town is kind of this great bit of, of, uh, what I've since come to call uh, community curation. Uh, it was a great bit of that because the town had actually gone to Gaylene Buckle and Jeff Pitcher at Theatre Newfoundland and Labrador and said, you know, you should really create a play about this woman. And so the spark of the idea of that show had come from the town, uh, which I think is pretty great and something to remember. I always tell people about that because I think it's a pretty awesome thing. And so that play happened and... Um, and so in, in doing that, because the dream was to take it to the old age homes where that generation of Newfoundlanders could experience the story because those were the ones who remembered her, um, we made it, myself and the director, Jill and Kylie, made it um, very small. It was only four actors. And we made it very minimalist. Mm -hmm. uh, but most importantly, we made it really, really culturally specific. I, I was using – I didn't break out like um, – I didn't break out uh, in jokes, but all but, you know, like yeah. I was using place names. I didn't kind of talk about distance between places, for example. I just throw a place name and assume that people would know how far away it was. Um, that kind of thing really just wrote it for the town of Cowhead and surrounding area. Uh, and then that show uh, happened in Cowhead and it was really successful. And then we brought it into St. John's. Jill wanted to bring it into St. John's. Um, and I was really concerned that it wouldn't work here because it was so because specific, was so specific yeah. to Western Newfoundland. And then it was it kind of hit here. And then they were bringing it to Ottawa. And I was like, well, it definitely won't work outside <laughs> Newfoundland. And it was a big hit in Ottawa. And then they were bringing it to Scotland. I was like, well, come on now. It's not going to work over there. And then it kept traveling. And so it's been traveling, you know, for 13 years or something. And uh, about, I guess, two years into that process, I, kinda, I think it was after the Edinburgh Festival in 2004, I kind of went, okay, I get it. I get it. The more specific you are, the more universal something is. When a stage manager, there was a company in Edinburgh from um, uh, rural Ireland, from Dublin, and she had grown up in rural Ireland, and she came up to me and said, "This, this is my town. Yeah. You know, it's nothing like my town, but I, the interactions of people, um, that's my town. How, how my town used to be, that made me go, okay, really, it's about the specificity of human experience that that becomes universal." And so then from that point on, and again, it wasn't a choice at that point. From that point on, because of the initial success of Tempting Providence, I was getting a lot of people coming up to me, 
like a lot of people coming up to me going, you know, I've got this story. Like my aunt was the first person to own a car in Bay Vert kind of thing. You should write a play about her. You should write a play about her. I was hearing that a lot. And uh, that translated into some plays. Like I got commissioned to do a play about um, Emile Benoit for the Stephenville Festival that eventually became an artistic fraud show. And uh, another show uh, about uh, Marguerite de Robovelle, uh for tempting for um, TNL, and so it just kind of started to snowball. And so over the ensuing, I guess, five or six years after Tempting Providence, I sort of became the theatrical biographer of Newfoundland legends or heroes or whatever. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of a remarkable mantle to have placed. Uh, upon yeah, you. and yeah. I, I guess you know somewhere around two thousand eight, two thousand nine, I started to buck against that. It started to make me a little bit uncomfortable or something, and then I kind of. Uh, realize no it's actually um it's actually a pretty awesome gig i'm really really happy to do it yeah um and mostly because what ends up happening uh not so much in the tempting providence thing because one of the mistakes i made with the tempting providence thing was that i uh i treated it like um uh, a staid old history so i went to i read books and i went to the library and did research and stuff and then wrote this play and then on uh one of the 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 open it wasn't the opening night but it was like the first public reading we had at the show um, we did the reading and after the reading Jeff Pitcher came to me and said so listen Trevor is here I said Trevor who she said, Trevor nurse's son yeah. nurse Bennett's son and it just floored me because it never occurred to me to talk to the family it just never occurred to me to actually go to any living people to talk about the subject matter and I was hugely embarrassed and uh, he thankfully was very supportive of the project but that was an important lesson too and since that all of my work has involved um, one-on-one interviews with people that were that either are the subject matter or are closely attached to the subject matter right and that work is amazing it's amazing and that's what i really fell in love with the um getting to know the people attached to these stories and then all of a sudden opening night and sharing these stories has a huge value that you know young me starting to write plays never saw in my future whatsoever so yeah I think that's a nice segue into the other project I wanted to talk to you about, which is the Lanier Phillips mm-hmm. uh, story, which um, I think is a little different in some ways than you know the Nurse Meyer Bennett story, because uh, the the Truxton and Pollock story ha- is a story that has almost achieved mythic mm-hmm. significance mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. province. Like, there's many many people who know that story. Um, for those who don't, do you want to give like the, the two oh you've minutes? heard you've heard it <laughs> everyone's you heard think this you story. don't you think you haven't heard it but you you have heard it uh, so in in uh, nineteen I'm gonna get my dates mixed up now in 1941 I'm getting her confused with uh, getting Lanier confused with Myra Bennett so I'm getting it. 42 it's 1942 wasn't it 1942 um, the uh, three warships uh, on their way to Ar- the Argentia base uh, ran aground near St Lawrence Newfoundland the Truxton Pollocks and the Wilkes. And uh, the Wilkes got off the rocks, but the Truxton and Pollocks didn't. And there was huge loss of life. I I believe it was the largest uh, naval disaster in American history at that point. And uh, huge loss of life. And on one of those boats um, was a young man by the name of Lanier Phillips, who, of course, is now famous. And uh, Lanier was 18 years old. Uh, He was one of four people of color on the Truxton. Um, it was just, it was only within a decade uh, that, that people of color were actually allowed to serve in the Navy and be in close quarters with the white soldiers. And he was essentially an indentured servant. He was what they call a mess attendant, so he was cleaning their laundry, serving their food. And on that boat, uh, you know, uh, black officers and Filipinos, there was a lot of Filipinos who served as well, where, you know, they stood to eat their meals. They weren't allowed to... You know, you know the deal. And he had uh, joined the Navy. He had grown up in a really rural part of um, Georgia outside of uh, Atlanta. And, uh, you know, the Klan burned down his elementary school. He watched that happen. And and he had kind of grown up to 
obviously with very good reason, uh, distrust and um, hate, he would say to himself, hate white people. And so he'd grown, he had joined the Navy to escape that life. And then uh, he was the only one, uh, on only person of color on the boat to actually try to swim to shore because they were afraid to swim to shore. They thought they were at Iceland, and Iceland at the time was a place that apparently there was a rule that no people of color could get off the boat in Iceland. So they thought they'd be lynched if they went to shore. Lanier jumped and made it to shore. Um, the boat, when it was breaking up on the shore, was leaking all of its oil. So there was a big slick of oil that the men had to get through to get to shore. So Lanier and all the other survivors were covered in this thick black bilge oil. And, of course, the famous story is that Lanier was brought in, uh, as were the other men. They were washing Lanier, and the woman washing him, uh, Violet Pike, um, mistook the oil for the, the mistook the color of his skin for the oil and thought she couldn't couldn't get him clean. The oil went had gone into his pores, uh, and when Lanier corrected her and said, "No, that's the color of my skin," she was you know oh apologetic and she took him back to her house and put him up and and uh, treated him really really kindly for two days. Two days that changed Lanier's life and he kind of his whole um, sense of self and his whole identity as a black man and his whole um, idea of race. And um, racism changed in those two days, and so that has become kind of a legend. And I, you know, I had heard that story. I guess in '97, I heard it from uh, Grant Boland had done, um, you know, Newfoundland painter had done this beautiful image uh, of men, the men getting washed. It was a painting called Incident at St. Lawrence that myself and Jill had seen, and he told me the story of Lanier Phillips. Although he didn't have a name, he just said, "You know, it was this black man, and they tried to wash mm-hmm. his skin." And so myself and Jill heard that story, and we're both kind of laughing and tearing up at the same time. That's just amazing. I thought that would make a great movie. Someone should make a movie out of that. And it was only years later, um, you know, that that, uh, Lanier started to come into prominence, partly because people did start the process of making a movie. Uh, John Vatcher and Kerry McDonald, who who worked on Republic of Doyle, had started this process of working with Lanier to tease his story out, and they brought him here, and he did talks at the rooms and stuff. And it was actually Kerry that, that... uh, in the middle of that, that kind of encouraged me to to make it a play, uh, and so Oil and Water was born. I guess I started work on that in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and it premiered in twenty eleven. And through through the process of that, this is one of these projects where you got to meet some of these people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, I remember. Um, I can't remember if it was Kerry or Chris Brooks. Chris Brooks uh, had done a radio documentary about Lanier as well. One of them had given me Lanier, uh, given me Lanier's number, and Lanier was still alive at the time. He was living in a retirement home in Gulfport, Mississippi. And I put off calling him. Oh my goodness, it was months. <laughs> just stared at that number, just absolutely terrified to pick up the phone. So I called him, and he was very, very kind. But at that point, he had um, uh, John and Carrie's. Uh, they were very supportive of the project, but their uh, rights to his life story had expired and had temporarily gone to a producer in Los Angeles. And so Lanier said, "You know, I'm fine with you doing this play. You know, the, the, the life story rights don't move over to uh, stage plays. But I feel like I can't talk to you. I, you, you can't interview me for this because." I feel like I might violate my agreement with this other person. Right. But you have my blessing to go off and do what you're going to do. And I said, okay. And so I went to, I didn't actually get the chance to, to interview Lanier personally about that. But one of the great things was that he had talked about it so much. It was so much in the oral record already, um, radio and TV documentaries about his story, uh, that I had a lot of access there. But what I did um, through that process get the chance to do was to go to St. Lawrence and meet um, some of the townspeople there, some of which were, uh, there were three at the time, there were three um, living um, men who had assisted in the rescue that day. 
uh, and one of which was um, Levi Pike, who was recommended to me right away. And so that was an instance, that was a great learning experience as well, because I went to interview Levi thinking that I was going to get in there and I was going to get details of what was like that day on the beach in St. Lawrence, which I'd already read had been really horrific. And Levi started talking. And as I've learned, these interviews always go this way. You ask a question about what it was like that day and they start talking. And all of a sudden they're talking about their family and they're talking about, you know, what they did for a living. And they're kind of going off topic. And I remember sitting in that interview, there was three of us, myself, Jill, and our composer, Andrew Craig, were in that initial interview and feeling a kind of sense of, uh, no, I got to get him back. I got to get him back talking about it. Uh, and we did our best to kind of keep him on track, and he told us some amazing stuff. But it was only when I went back and listened to the tapes that I realized that's where the real gold was. Um, he told me a lot of stuff about um, the trucks and disaster that, that wasn't in um, the historical record, and that was great. But he also told me a lot of stuff about his relationship with his wife and how they met. He told me stuff about working in the mines um, that became so uh, invaluable to the story that actually created a character, Levi, in the play that I did not intend to do when I met Levi, when I first met him. Um, so that was a real uh, mind-expanding uh, experience. And now when I when I go in to interview people, I will kind of gently bring them back when I feel that we're straying too far. But I'll just let them go because, yeah. you know, it just happened recently on another project. I was interviewing a guy, and he went, and he was dropping these amazing things that... Again, he's become a character in the play because of what he shared outside of the experience of what I was looking for. Um, so, yeah, that's Oil and Water. And it became this, uh, you know, uh, I think Oil and Water was the, like I say, you know, a Nurse Bennett story had happened. And, um, and you know, Trevor had come to see it. And, and Emile's widow, uh, Rita, had seen um, uh, Emile's dream when we did it out in Black Duck Brook. But opening night of oil and water was the first time, is that true? Yes, it is. The first time that there were characters, the people in the audience watching characters based on them that I had created. So Levi was in the opening night audience and also Vonza Phillips, um, Lanier's daughter, had come up to see it from Georgia. And that was a brand new, terrifying experience. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Ended up being great, yeah. <laughs> but it could have, could have yeah. gone the other way. So I, want, I wanted to ask then, like when when you when you write a play and it, and it is you know it reaches the point where it's being produced and it's being shown back to the audience, that is the heart of the play. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's being performed for people who are from St. Lawrence or people who knew Meyer Bennett, um, how how does how do those communities view your work? Do you think? What kind of feedback do you get? Oh, gee, I don't know. Um, what do the people of St. Lawrence think of Oil and Water? They've been super supportive. We had the great opportunity to do it down there, and we toured it provincially. We brought it down there in kind of a what we were calling a concert version because the set was too large to fit in some mm-hmm. of the theaters we did in that tour. So we, we did a, almost like a, a staged reading version with just that mic stands and singing and performing. And it's a really, really great version of the show. Actually, it's really beautiful. The story really stands out. Um, and that was a really, really beautiful night, you know, to be doing that show... Uh, it was a really special night for the cast and crew because, um, you know, they've been working on the show for a couple of years at that point and to finally get, you know, that day we took them out to Chambers Cove to show them where it actually had happened. They were all very, very moved and kind of shaken by the whole thing. And and then, you know, to be in an auditorium with four or 500 people, uh, Levi and his family are there again. Um, that afternoon they'd all gone out to visit the grave sites of the, the people, you know, Ina Farrell Edwards and, and John and Violet Pike. 
you know, I went to John and Violet Pike's grave with Petrina and Jody, who play them in the show. So it was a very kind of heavy, uh, beautiful, rich day anyway. And then, um, you know, the town is there and all the kids are there and so many of them know Lanier. And Levi was still alive at that point. He died, uh, I think, the next year. Um, it's incredible. And, and it was so supportive and so great, you know, and that, that, that happens. And, you know, I realize in those moments too, sometimes that, you know, what, how we tell stories at Artistic Fraud, my company with Jill, how we tell stories, we, we do like to tell these stories, but we also like to do them in unexpected ways. And we don't tell a straight up narrative sometimes. So how oil and water works, you know, there's three storylines, separate storylines that kind of start very independently and then kind of weave together by the end of the show. Uh, and, uh, it can be uh, not the way that you expected the show to unfold. For example, I remember when we did the show at the Arts and Culture Center, uh, the, the curtain call was happening, and I had to run backstage for something. So as soon as the curtain call started to happen, I ran out of the back of the theater and I was running to get backstage. And uh, I encountered uh, this older woman with you know her daughter or her granddaughter, and they were walking over the stairs. And as I was passing them, uh, the, the younger woman was saying to the older woman, it's like, well, you know, Nan, there's different ways to tell stories. <laughs> and obviously this older woman just hated it or was confused. Or, confused yeah. And I think that's fine. Yeah. But I, I I, never got the sense from uh, the people of St. Lawrence about that. And probably because they know the story so well. They, they know the characters. They know where it's going. Um, but uh, those count as some of the real special moments in this kind of work. Doing that show in St. Lawrence, bringing Emile's dream to Black Duck Brook and having literally having people in the audience in that show three characters three actors play Emile Benoit through the show talking about themselves in the first person as they are all Emile and so it's a very you know again it's not a typical way to tell yeah. a story and three guys are up there you know doing Emile and people are in the audience going oh yes you were like like they're talking they're <laughs> talking out loud to Emile like yeah. their their husband their uncle their it was incredible. And the first one that started to happen, the person next to me, I forget who it was, that was working on the show, started to like, you're being so loud and we should tell them to be. It's like, no, this is amazing. They're having an interaction with yeah. Emile. It was incredible. And the actress kind of loved it. And, you know, it was. Uh, and, I, and I think of all the, the shows of yours that I've seen, that's the one that comes closest to, to storytelling. Storytelling, yeah. yeah. And, and that's so fitting because he was an, an incredible yes. storyteller. Yeah. And in fact, you know, on the script version of that, I actually say a story, a story with music because it doesn't feel right to call it a play because there's kind of no conflict in it. <laughs> There's no, it is straight up storytelling. And, you know, the theatricality of it comes from how Jill does it and how she weaves the music into it. But uh, uh, it's not your typical play. Yeah. It, uh, I, yeah. Want, I wanted to ask a, a little bit about, um, you know, you, you write about these characters, some of whom are, you know, have almost become... Well, they are larger than life. Like, mm-hmm. Lanier Phillips has become a mythological character. You know, your, your Colony of Unrequited Dreams adaptation with Joy Smallwood, who is kind of the larger than life figure. Mm-hmm. And, you, and so you have characters like, like them who are historical characters. But then you also have, you know, in Butler's Marsh, where you're talking about the fairy world, mm-hmm. or, or Marguerite Robeval, who is of questionable, questionable. Yeah, yeah, historical yeah. accuracy, you yeah. know? Um, so how do you, do you, do you worry about that as a playwright? Where the, that line between myth and history? You know, I really don't. And I'm very, very quick. In fact, on the, uh, in the colony program, I actually said, you know, very upfront, I did no research for the show <laughs> because my job on colony of unrequited dreams. Which and do, course, do you see the historians kind of lose their mind? When well, they hear probably, something like that? Yeah. probably. <laughs> and I don't blame them um, because I know it sounds irresponsible right off the top, but, um, my job, particularly on Colony, um, 
which is, of course, based on Wayne Johnston's book, uh, which is, of course, a fictional treatment of Smallwood's life yeah. anyway. My job on that sh- on that show was to make a good piece of theater out of this massive, very challenging narrative. Uh, challenging insofar as it's amazing, but challenging insofar as it's way beyond the sweep of what most theater shows can handle and encompass. And so it was really about condensing that down and finding the heart of what that, that book is to put it on, on stage. That became my focus. And... Uh, so I was very upfront in the in the notes in that program. Like this is not the history of Joey Smollett. If you're looking for that, there are plenty of great books on it. Uh, I suggest you go read them. Um, and you know, uh, I think I think my job as a playwright has to be um, has to be to to take those stories and to make them work in the form that I'm making them work. And I remember talking to. Um, I remember talking to uh, Joe McLeod, who is a, a playwright out in BC, who uh, an amazing people in this province might know her because she wrote a beautiful play about the Ocean Ranger disaster called Jewel years ago. Um, that was somewhat controversial because she was a CFA writing about Newfoundland, but it's actually a really, really beautiful piece about uh, the Ocean Ranger. Uh, and she wrote a play about uh, Rena Verk. Um, some of you listeners might remember Rena Verk was the young woman who was uh, killed under the bridge in, uh, I believe it was in Vancouver, Victoria. Uh, I guess about 10 years ago now, uh, a group of young women had uh, had killed her. She was bullied kind of violently and was killed. And so uh, Joan was commissioned to write a play about this. And I remember talking to her about it and saying, did you, uh, did you talk to... Did you talk to the Verk family? How much research did you do talking to them? And she was quite, she's like, I, I purposefully didn't mm-hmm. because I knew that the job ahead of me in terms of creating a TYA piece about bullying and violence, particularly violence among young women, which was atypical, kind of a, a crazy, scary notion at the time, um, that the job ahead of her was really, really hard. And she wanted to have the freedom to move away from the story, which she did. I mean, Rena Burke is not, it's evoked, she's evoked in that, that play, but not talked about specifically. Uh, and she created this amazing, amazing piece of theater uh, called The Shape of a Girl. Uh, and so I guess I, I kind of run on that a little bit as well, that, you know, the, there is a uh, there is a sense of I have to have the freedom to deviate off the historical record a little bit. Now, that being said, when I get into problems dramaturgically, if I hit something that's not working with the play, uh, one of the great things about doing this kind of work is that I always go back to the research. Right. And usually the research will give me the answer. Yeah. And uh, the Lanier story, for example, um, is pretty accurate. There are a couple of things in there I fudged. Like there's a, you know, Lanier actually uh, in his story, uh, he gets into a lifeboat and the lifeboat flips as they're making it to shore. In my version of the story, for the purposes of the play and the themes I was exploring, he's not allowed. They won't let him in in the lifeboat. That's that's me. Uh, I put that in there for a number of reasons to make the play work better. And I remember when when Vonza was here to see it, uh, CBC interviewed her and uh, and said, you know, was it accurate? And she had the best answer. <laughs> she kind of paused. I was in the, the 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 you know the the tech booth watching her do this interview. She kind of paused for a second. She said, you know, you have to you have to make things you have to extrapolate. You have to make things work for that. She just answered like this beautiful answer about uh, no, it wasn't entirely accurate. But Robert took things that were small and made them big and. In order to make things work as a story, yeah, I think we work with it sometimes you know, in performance. We work with a different type of truth. Yeah, exactly. In order to get yeah. to the emotional truth, something you have to stretch the factual truth. Yeah. Um, and I'd like, I mean, ultimately, my goal with all of this, and I say it over and over and over again, my goal with all of this is to um, is to get some sort of emotional core truth of these people and their lives and their experience. 
But in order to get there, in the form that I'm working in, I have to stretch other aspects of their story. And so far, I haven't <laughs> knock on wood. So far, I haven't <laughs> run any, into any difficulties with that. You know, um, and in Colony, for example, there, you know, there's I had to stretch things even further away from from Wayne's book in order to make sense of them. You know, uh, that I just had to. to uh, change around the trajectory of Joey's life a little bit to make it work in just in terms of the three-act structure of the play and how things landed and where they landed. and So uh, I, I embrace that freedom, but I'm always very upfront about if you're looking for the historical truth, uh, I got a, a good reading list for you. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Robert, this this has been uh, amazing. We're, we're, we're running very close to the end of our time, but Colony will continue to tour? Yeah, we're hoping to tour it in 2017, which is, of course, Canada's 150th birthday, so we're in discussions right now with some very exciting theaters and venues for that and hopefully there will be a piece about uh, collecting other stories and, and yes that's what we're hoping i mean it, yeah. it is it is confederation year it's 150th anniversary so i think it's a great opportunity to use this show as a catalyst to uh, to talk to people about joining canada and joey smallwood and uh what uh, the the notion of nationhood generally whether it be newfoundland or canada i think it's a great opportunity to have that conversation again great well, we look forward to it thank you for coming on the show thanks dale I'm Dale Jarvis, and our production assistant is Tara Barrett. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5, in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>